0: Well, let's open to John's Gospel. And let's commence a study of this truly magnificent piece of literature. You're probably turning to the first verse. Actually, let's turn to the last verse. The last verse, John 21 and verse 25. We'll come to the first verse next week. The Bible is not one book. It's 66 books. The first 39 comprise the Old Testament. Another 27 comprise the New Testament. These books were written by some 40 authors over 15 centuries in three languages, Greek, Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic. The Bible is not a Western text. It was read in hundreds of languages before being translated into English. The Bible is not an American text. The Bible was completed 15 centuries before English speaking colonists even arrived in the New World. Today, the Amity Press in Nanjing, China publishes more Bibles than any other press in the world, having produced nearly 175 million Bibles in 90 languages for distribution to 100 countries. The Bible is the unrivaled best selling book in human history, and I do mean unrivaled. It is available in 2,500 languages, with many more translations currently in the works. By comparison, Harry Potter, a recent best-selling phenomenon, is available in just 55 languages, as compared to 2,500 languages. At its peak, Harry Potter averaged between 5 to 6 million copies sold worldwide each year. Five to six million copies worldwide each year. The Bible sells four times that number just in the United States. And our population represents less than 5% of the world's population. After 20 years, Harry Potter sales are declining. After 2,000 years, Bible sales are increasing In 2009, the Bible sold 82,000 copies every day, 3,460 copies every hour. That's nearly one copy every second. What makes the Bible such an extraordinary book? Much of the Bible is very difficult to read. The Bible is a very long book to work through. The Bible tells us very difficult things about ourselves, about our sin, about God's judgment, very unpleasant things. I would not say the Bible is particularly entertaining. The Bible contains perplexing passages that are really difficult to interpret. Some passages actually present us with moral dilemmas, and yet somehow people are drawn to the Bible. And that's because those 66 books were written by people who never knew each other, separated by as much as 15 centuries, and yet they were all contributing to the same story. A story ultimately centered on a man named Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth who at Pentecost became known as Jesus Christ. No other book in world history came together in the way that the Bible did. And no other book has such an intriguing central character. And just how important is Jesus? Well, would you imagine a bookshelf, seven feet tall, and it's full of books. I have a couple of seven foot tall bookshelves at home in my office, and they contain 133 books. Now imagine a row of 10 seven foot bookshelves. And once you have that image in mind, then just multiply it 45 times. 450 seven foot bookshelves full of books. If you filled those shelves with 133 books each, you would have 59,580 books. Yaroslav Pelikan, the great historian and Yale professor, wrote, People have been attempting to write Lives of Jesus for a very long time. There have been more of them than of any other man or woman in history. Sixty... Thousand were written in the 19th century alone. My illustration, 59,580 books on all those bookshelves. 60,000 attempts to understand Jesus in one century. Another Yale historian, Kenneth Scott Ladorette, wrote, "...no other life ever lived on this planet has evoked so huge a volume of literature among so many peoples and languages." And far from ebbing, the flow continues to mount. Now would you consider just three facts about all those thousands upon thousands and thousands of books written about Jesus? Number one, all of those books derive ultimately from just four Gospels. Four Gospels found at the beginning of the New Testament. And those Gospels are relatively short books. Secondly, those four Gospels concern just 10% of Jesus' life, for the most part, just 10% of His life, from approximately age 30 to age 33. And thirdly, one-third of that Gospel material concerns just one week, the last week of Jesus' life. The fact is, the vast majority of Jesus' life and teachings was never recorded. You could read through Jesus' five sermons recorded in Matthew in less than an hour. How many of the things did Jesus say, did Jesus do, that we have no record of? The surprisingly little that we actually know about Jesus of Nazareth has produced vast libraries of research—sixty thousand volumes in one century—and the commentaries and the theological treatises and the doctoral dissertations just keep on coming. You just you can't keep up with it all; it's impossible. And that really should not surprise us. Look at John twenty-one. 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. If we can produce 60,000 volumes of research in a century based on the little information that we have, can you only imagine if we had a complete record of Jesus' life. Now friends, of those 66 books that collectively comprise the world's runaway, best-selling volume in all human history, probably no book is more widely read, memorized, quoted, loved, reprinted, misunderstood, contemplated, obeyed, and rejected than the Gospel of John. John is often the first piece of literature that anyone reads about Jesus of Nazareth. And John's Gospel does not leave any doubt whatsoever as to the author's purpose. Would you look back to the last verses of the previous chapter John, unlike the Synoptics, clearly states his purpose. Why did he write this book? John 20, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is a book about life. And how to have life by believing in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John is not interested in all the trivial pursuit about the details of Jesus' life. John has selected certain materials deliberately so that you understand exactly who Jesus is. That's what he's saying. The most famous book, in the most famous book in world history, is about Jesus. Jesus. Classical historian Michael Grant has written, the most potent figure, not only in the history of religion, but in world history as a whole, is Jesus Christ, the maker of one of the few revolutions which have lasted. How great the gain indeed to obtain any information at all about the most important person who has ever lived would be a benefit of immeasurable dimensions. Well, that's John's point. He cannot tell you everything there is to know about Jesus. It would just take far too long. He would run out of parchment and ink. But what we do learn of Jesus in the pages of John's Gospel will be a benefit of immeasurable dimensions. You'll never learn anything more important than what you learn about Jesus. And listen to what another historian, Will Durant, wrote of Jesus. The evangelists, that is the gospel writers, record many incidents that mere inventors would have concealed. The competition of the apostles for high places in the kingdom, their flight after Jesus' arrest, Peter's denial, the failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee, his confessions of ignorance as to the future his moments of bitterness, his despairing cry on the cross. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. That a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood, would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. After two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life, character, and teaching of Christ remain reasonably clear and constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. Those are wonderful words. But Will Durant was an atheist. Atheist. He understood that Jesus was a magnificent personality commanding the attention of centuries of scholarship. There is no denying the influence of Jesus. But friends, don't read John's Gospel like Will Durant without coming to John's verdict. Verse 31, "...these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God." And that by believing, you may have life in His name. John's subject is Jesus. And John's purpose is to offer you life through discovering Jesus. But friends, what kind of life is John talking about? If you just read the verse, it goes without saying that you're alive. Is there another kind of life? To be clear about what kind of life John is concerned with in his gospel, would you turn back now to John chapter 4. John 4. In John 4, we find Jesus interacting with a woman by a well in Sychar in Samaria. And Jesus makes a distinction between two kinds of life through an analogy of water. We all know that water is crucial to sustaining terrestrial life on our planet. This is why ancient nomads like Jacob just drilled down into the heart of the earth to find water. And This is why for centuries people just kept coming back to those ancient wells to find water for themselves and their flocks. Without water, we die. But Jesus, in this context, speaks of another kind of water. Let's begin reading in verse 5. So we came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. There is, of course, much detail here that we'll have to come back to on a later occasion and work through. But for now, would you just simply observe the kind of water of life that Jesus speaks of. To get the woman's attention in verse 10, he refers to living water. And what is that? In verse 14, he refers to a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, Jesus would have had hundreds, perhaps thousands of interactions with people during the course of his three-year ministry. But John the Apostle deliberately chose this story to include in his account. This story is crucial because it emphasizes there's more than one kind of life. What kind of life is Jesus and John, his biographer, interested in? Not just life but life that does not end. Now, we all know that our planet is full of life. From the great blue whales plumbing ocean depths, to eagles soaring through mountain ravines, from tiny little cells that are far too small to see with the naked eye, to the great elephant herds rumbling across the African plains. Our planet is just full of life. Did you know that there are some 350,000 species of beetles that we know of on our planet? In fact, there was a new species discovered in the fossil record just eight days ago. Very interesting. But all that life has this in common. It dies. It all dies. In fact, planet Earth is a massive graveyard. Literally, there are billions and billions of fossils that are buried beneath our feet, in sedimentary layers stretching all across the globe. However, to believe on Jesus is to find a new kind of life, life that does not end. When John says these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have a life in his name, the life that he refers to is not the mortal life that you have now, but life that does not end. Eternal life. That's what John is after. That's the life that Jesus wished to introduce to the woman at the well In verse 10, he refers to living water. And again, what is living water? Middle of verse 14, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Water will quench your thirst for a moment, but it will not keep you alive indefinitely. What we all need is a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But you might be asking, is that sort of life even possible? Maybe you're skeptical. Many people are. How would we know that eternal life is actually possible? To answer that question, let's return to John chapter 20. And let's return and notice the account that immediately precedes John's purpose statement. That statement was found in John 20, 30-31. Alright? What precedes that statement? But notice first John 20 and verse 30. And locate just one word. The word other. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Jesus performed certain miracles or signs right there in front of His disciples, which convinced them that He was indeed the Son of God who gives life. But other points us to the immediate context. Other refers to signs in addition to the one in the immediate context. So what is the sign here in the context? that the word other is pointing to. Well, back in chapter 19, Jesus was brutally crucified. And Jesus most certainly was dead. The soldiers who were expert executioners clearly saw that he was dead. And even so, they ran a spear up his side, puncturing the pericardial sac surrounding his heart. Jesus was dead. Nevertheless, beginning in John 20 and verse 19, we read, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. There was the crucified Jesus suddenly standing in their presence perfectly restored. Now, don't picture Jesus as a ghost because he can pass through the door. I'll spend more time with this later, but the door, friends, is the ghost, compared to the more firm reality of Jesus' resurrected body. We live in the vapor world. Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus told His disciples, Touch me, my flesh and my bones, and you'll see I'm not a ghost. And here Jesus clearly has a physical body that retains scars, from the crucifixion. And in verse 22, Jesus breathed on them. Evidently, his lungs, pierced by the spear, were healed. He inhaled and he exhaled. Jesus came back in his body. Jesus did not come, friends, to cure us of our humanity. He came to cure us of our sins. Many Christians misunderstand this. But keep reading in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into His side, I will not believe. Well, Thomas clearly demands to see a body. And not just a body, but the identical body that was crucified. It's got to be the same body. Yes, indeed, the body of Jesus was restored, but friends, it was restored in such a way that it kept those visible scars. Did Jesus then oblige Thomas' demands? Verse 26, Eight days later, his disciples were in sight again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." Well, clearly, Jesus responded to Thomas's demands to see a scarred body. Touch it and see, Thomas. He was no ghost. This was no apparition. This is no hallucination. Go ahead and touch me. And notice Jesus' emphasis on sight and touch. Jesus appeal to scientific. Scientific. Empirical evidence, touch and see. Now, would you think about Thomas for just a moment? Thomas is one of the chosen 12 apostles who accompanied Jesus from the beginning. He has witnessed numerous miracles, including resurrection miracles. And Thomas has heard Jesus predict his own death and resurrection at least three times. Three times that we know of. And further, get this, Thomas himself has performed miracles. Think of that. He has performed miracles. Possibly, he himself has even raised the dead. Back in Matthew 10, Jesus sent out the disciples, and he said, raise the dead. Thomas has to believe in miracles. But Thomas isn't totally convinced. He is not even convinced by the the testimony of ten, ten apostles who witnessed the resurrection. What changed his mind? He saw a scarred body. And then, and only then, Thomas exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Friends, this is a clear testimony to the true identity of Jesus Christ, resurrected in a scarred body from the grave. Now, all of that gives you the immediate context in which we find the words of verses 30 and 31. So let's read them again. Now, Jesus did many other signs, pause, other signs, in addition to this remarkable sign of bodily resurrection. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The sign in the immediate context was a scarred but resurrected body. When Thomas saw scars etched into the human body of God, he believed. Friends, the resurrection was the great, definitive, final sign that we should, in fact, believe on Jesus Christ in order that we might have not just life, but life that goes on forever. Why on earth would you believe on anyone else for eternal life apart from the person who actually resurrected his own crucified body from the grave. I mean, it literally makes no sense to believe on anybody else than the very one who actually resurrected his own life. He indeed can give you eternal life. Could there be a better sign? So friends, the entire Gospel of John, and in fact the message of the entire Bible, just points like an arrow straight to Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, and ultimately to this crucial truth. Jesus Christ is the crucified and resurrected Son of God, and believing on him, we have eternal life. Jesus made many, many astonishing claims about himself throughout his ministry. Jesus claimed to be God. Others before Him have made similar claims. But again, Jesus authenticated His claims when He resurrected from the grave. Through the years, we have had followers of the prophet Muhammad who have visited our church. And of course, we welcome them. I have had conversations with them in an aisle following a service, or as part of our international ministry. Muhammad died in the year 632 A.D. on the Christian calendar. On the ninth day of al hijjah the twelfth and final month of the Islamic year, Muhammad preached his final sermon. It is called the Farewell Sermon. And Muhammad said, and I quote, O people, lend me an attentive ear, for I do not know whether after this year I shall ever be amongst you again. Therefore, listen to what I am saying to you very carefully and take these words to those who could not be present here today. Those are his final recorded words. And the Quran and the Islamic tradition do not teach a bodily resurrection of Muhammad. No one has ever seen him again. The Bible likewise records the final sermon of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's found right here in our gospel, the gospel of John. Listen closely to Jesus' words. Let me just read a few statements from his final sermon found in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, but the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Those do not sound like the words of a man who plans to stay dead for very long. Jesus prepares for death as if he's just going to go right on living. Now, we tend to read these words with the outcome in view, but remember the disciples at this point still do not understand what Jesus is really up to. Thomas was not the only doubter in the group, and none of them as yet really fully understand the full significance of bodily resurrection. We also have disciples of a man named Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, who visit our church. Good to see Brother Mark Lehman here today. I imagine that he has many, many interactions with Buddhists. We, of course, certainly welcome Buddhists. The Buddha lived on the subcontinent of India in the 6th century B.C., The Buddha's last supper was prepared by a blacksmith named Kunda. The Theravada tradition believes that the Buddha was offered pork. The Mahayana tradition believes the Buddha consumed mushrooms. We don't know for sure, but both traditions agree that the Buddha experienced, after this meal, violent and painful convulsions, and then he died a horrible, miserable death. And both traditions agree that there is no bodily resurrection of the Buddha, of Siddhartha. No one has ever seen him since. In fact, the Buddha cannot resurrect, or Siddhartha cannot resurrect, because the spirit of the Buddha has been passed on now to others, including the 14th and contemporary Dalai Lama, who is now some 86 years old. Well, it's interesting that Jesus' Last Supper was likewise followed by violent convulsions and a painful and horrible death. That death, in fact, was preceded by a horrific episode of sweating blood and dark Gethsemane in the valley of the shadow of death. But in three days, Jesus' followers saw Him bodily resurrected just as He predicted. And right here in John 20 and verse 25... The disciples tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. You will find no such teaching in Buddhism. In fact, the rather miserable goal of Buddhism is for the self to cease to exist when the follower finally achieves nirvana. We have visitors who come from the Hindu tradition and they visit our church. They place a high regard in the Vedic and Upanishadic Upanishadic literature that comes from ancient India. And again, we certainly welcome them. The Hindu tradition, in a way that's very similar to the ancient Greek tradition of Plato, teaches the transmigration of the soul through many cycles or reincarnations. To finally escape the cycle is to achieve nirvana. But nirvana is not the eternal life that Jesus offers. Let me read you a description of nirvana. A little difficult to understand, but I'll try to clarify it. This comes from an ancient Taoist text. There is, monks a condition where there is neither the element of extension, that means to occupy bodily space, the element of cohesion, the element of heat, nor the element of motion, nor the sphere of the infinity of space, nor the sphere of the infinity of consciousness, nor the sphere of nothingness, nor the sphere, sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, neither perception nor non-perception, neither this world, nor a world beyond, nor sun and moon. In other words, let me pause, Nirvana is a state of non being where we do not move, we are not self aware, we do not perceive the world through our senses, we feel no heat. And I continue, there, monks, I say, there is neither coming nor going, nor staying, nor passing away, nor arising. There's no death and resurrection. Without support or mobility or basis, is it? This is indeed the end of suffering, which is the goal of Buddhism. Because there was an unborn, a not-become, a not-made, a not-compounded, therefore there is an escape from the born the become the made, the compounded. Essentially, nirvana is a place of non-being. Non-awareness. You cease to exist as the individual self. You cease to exist as Atman separated from Brahman. Literally, nirvana means to snuff out like a candle. You're gone. This philosophy is very similar to the doctrine of the ancient Epicureans. Who believed that at death, your atoms just dissolve into the void of space, never to reassemble? The Roman poet Lucretius, in a work that anticipated Charles Darwin, a work called Dererum Natura, spread Epicurean dogma far and wide, all through the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus. He was widely read, and Paul met with Epicurean philosophers on Mars Hill. And Paul, I'm convinced, had actually read Lucretius. To die, says the Epicurean, is to face eternal extinction. It's no wonder that Paul preached of all subjects what? The resurrection of the dead. Friends, Jesus does not offer eternal extinction. He does not offer nirvana He offers us eternal life. He offers living water that keeps you alive both for time and for eternity. That's what John's Gospel is all about. And again, what kind of life precisely? The best clue that we have is the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come back to life embodied so that we can come back to life disembodied. That's Gnosticism. Jesus, again, did not come to deliver us from our humanity. That's Gnosticism, and the ancient church had to really deal with that. He came to deliver us from our sins and to restore our humanity. Jesus came to offer something entirely different than the Muhammad, than Muhammad the Buddha, the Hindu sage, Epicurus, Lucretius, and countless other religious leaders that have walked through the pages of human history have offered, Jesus came to offer a path through death, through death, back to life. And let's be very, very precise. As the resurrection scholar N.T. Wright puts it, Jesus came to give us life after life after death. Think of that. Life after life after death. Do you understand the difference? Not just life after death in some sort of disembodied state. That's Gnosticism. But life after life after death. When the believer dies he or she goes instantly into the presence of the Lord. In fact, Jesus tells us curiously we don't even taste of death. We're just instantly in the presence of the Lord. Well, friends, that's life after death. Likewise, when Jesus died, he was caught up immediately in the paradise. We know this because he told the dying thief today This very day, you will be with me in paradise. That's where Jesus went when he died. You will be with me in paradise. That, friends, is life after death. But Jesus' body lay in the grave. Today, you'll be with me in paradise, but his body was put in the grave. However, at the resurrection, Jesus experienced not just life after death, but life after life after death. You see the difference? Life after life after death. Jesus enjoyed bodily life after life after death. That is the everlasting life that John is concerned to tell you about in this gospel. And friends, when the disciples saw the body the body, the scarred body, only then were they transformed into willing martyrs for Christ. They understood life after death, but they did not yet understand life after life after death until they saw the scarred body. And at that point, they became willing martyrs for Christ only because they saw a body, proof that life after life after death was indeed reality. Only then, they set about to become preachers of Christ's kingdom to the ends of the earth. And only after seeing a scarred body did they sit down and write out four Gospels. And those four Gospels, in one century alone, produce another 60 Thousand volumes attempting to come come to terms with this extraordinary person, Jesus of Nazareth, so wouldn 't you agree that we need to go back beginning next week to the beginning of john 's gospel, John chapter one and verse one, and begin working. Line by line by line, right through this extraordinary book. And I'm going to give you one warning. John 1 alone is such an extraordinary piece of theological writing that it's going to take a while to work through. It's kind of like John 1 and then everything else. Three of the deepest mysteries in the universe. Concern number one, the energy source that expanded the universe into existence. What caused all that? Number two, the origin and definition of life. Biologists do not know what it is. And number three, the nature of light. Physicists as yet do not know what it is. And guess how John introduces Jesus? the Logos, the life, and the light. Shall we pray? Father, we thank You for this extraordinary Gospel. We thank You, Lord, for our extraordinary Savior. And I pray, Lord, that as we launch into this study of the Gospel of John, that our lives would be transformed that our hearts would fall more deeply in love with Christ that our understanding of reality would be enhanced I pray Lord for our children our young people Lord who are discovering the world around them discovering other voices Muhammad Siddhartha Epicurus, prominent voices in philosophy and science today. Lord, I pray that our children, our young people, our college students would come to embrace the Logos, the voice who indeed spoke the universe into existence, and the voice that became flesh and tabernacled among us. May we behold His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And I pray, Lord, that this study in the Gospel of John would truly, truly just revolutionize our thinking, our attitudes, our emotions in the life of our church. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.